I'm not sure if you've heard of the English phrase, coming full circle. This phrase probably originated from Shakespeare's play, King Lear, when the character Edmund says to Edgar, the wheel has come full circle, I am here. And it implies that in spite of everything that has happened and all the actions that have taken place, we are back to the starting point. The cycle is complete. The phrase coming full circle describes a situation in which events run their course and things end much as they began, hence the idea of the circle. If you're unfamiliar with this concept, just think about the opening song to The Lion King and then it's played again at the end. You know it to be the circle of life in which the lyricist wrote, in the circle of life, it's the wheel of fortune, it's the leap of faith, it's the band of hope. Till we find our place on the path unwinding in the circle, the circle of life. While this is a moving song, it's rather a song without much hope as it implies that we will end up where we started. And what happens in between life is simply just by luck, a mix of faith and hope. So good luck with life and hope for the best. Sadly, without the Lord in our life, that's just it. Life becomes rather meaningless because we are born and then we die. That's why the pastor says at the burial, we therefore commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Because we came from dust and we go back to dust. That seems rather depressing. Without something more, without hope, the pastor cannot continue and say, looking for that blessed hope, when the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes proclaims the same thing about life. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless as he looks at the circle of life. And that's why the book's thesis is that a life lived apart from God is utterly meaningless. And so for a life coming full circle, for the Christian and for the non-Christian, if that is how your life ends, as it began, without any learnings, without any changes, then that is a life wasted. Because we simply come back to the same place we come back to the same situation and we never really learn anything in our life. Let me propose to you today that instead of circles, maybe you can think about your life as an arc. If you know anything about mathematics, arcs are circular like circles, but they don't come back to the same point. They end up somewhere. They move from one point to another point on a mathematical plane. A circle ends up at the same point. As we continue our home series looking at the life of Jacob, and now we come to chapter 35, it looks like as if his life has come full circle, ending up how it began. Jacob will circle back to Bethel as he promised God he would if God was faithful and took care of him. Jacob will circle back and be reminded of and accept the covenanted promise of God to his forefathers. And Jacob will circle back and return to his hometown in Hebron, where he first fled. The Jacob that left when we started our study isn't the Jacob that returned. That's why his life is not really a circle, but an arc, even though he ends up in the same locations. So instead of circles for Jacob's life, let me propose three thematic arcs in his life. Because while it seems that things end as they began, things have dramatically changed. And so we need to see them as arcs. In chapter 35 of the book of Genesis, there are three deaths recorded. These three deaths are that of his mother's nurse, his wife, and his father. And they will mark out three natural endings to close out various themes or lessons in the life of Jacob. As Jacob lives through these deaths, his life indeed comes full circle. But what is most important 
are the three spiritual principles he learns. These are the lessons we need to learn in life as well. Look at me at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. As Jacob had settled back into the land of Canaan, God had to remind Jacob about the vow he made to the Lord at Bethel. This was God's fourth appearance to Jacob. Now, for a refresher of what this vow entailed that Jacob promised God, let me read Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 to 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now remember the context of this vow. Jacob is running away from Esau who is trying to kill him. Jacob is all alone and doesn't know if he will live, much less even hope to come back home. But God appeared to him at this place called Bethel and assured him that he would always be with Jacob that he would bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan, and therefore Jacob makes a vow. And that vow is that if God does indeed bring him back safely to Canaan, then he will do these three things. The first being that the one true God, Yahweh, will be his one and only God, the God he trusts and he obeys. Second, that in the placement of the pillar that he puts up, that it would be a special place of the Lord as his house. And then thirdly, that there will be giving of an offering to the Lord, a tenth of all that Jacob has. Well, apparently, life got busy for Jacob as he settled in after his reconciliation meeting with Esau. And then we had that terrible incident of his daughter's rape and the subsequent fiasco and mess in the city of Shechem, which we talked about last week. One biblical scholar calculates that Jacob has been back in Canaan for at least 10 years, and had not returned back to Bethel to fulfill his vow. Perhaps Jacob had simply forgotten to fulfill it, or life got busy and he forgot. Or perhaps it was the continued influence of the idols that Rachel and others in their family had collected along their journey from Padam Aram, and now as they associated with the, the pagan Canaanites, they acquired some foreign gods, to which the spiritual sensitivity of Jacob was not as strong, and so he also forgot about his vow to God. He was somehow distracted because instead of returning home to be with Isaac in Hebron, he initially settled near Shechem. Well, whatever the case, Jacob doesn't lead his family to fulfill his vow, which required that the Lord come and appear to him, and specifically remind him to go back to Bethel and fulfill his vow. And this happens shortly after the incident in Shechem. Well, Jacob finally gets moving and realizes that this was indeed something very important that had not yet been done. And with this command from God, we finally see the spiritual leadership of Jacob, which we had not seen before, and certainly was not apparent last week. Look at verses 2 and 3. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Before their journey to Bethel, Jacob realized it was important that they consecrated themselves, they purified themselves, they had to be clean before they came before the Lord and worshipped Him. So Jacob instructed that all in his family were to get rid of the false gods that they had been hanging on to. And this would have included the household gods of Laban that Rachel had stolen, which we talked about a few weeks ago in home number eight, and probably other gods that they had picked up in their interaction with the Canaanites. And the reason for this is because they were going to Bethel 
to worship God by building an altar there. That's important that when we come to worship God, that we must have our lives consecrated, that we must be cleansed, that we understand that when we worship God, it is not simply on a whim that we need to prepare ourselves to come into the presence of God. Look at the reason why Jacob gives to his family for why the true God Yahweh was to be worshipped. And we see that in verse 3. Because God was there to help him in his time of distress and had never left him all this time. I think Jacob came to the realization that this was important to do. Because as he remembered why he needed to worship God, it sparked him to do so. This is what has changed in the heart of Jacob. Yes, he is coming full circle back to Bethel, but in his learning arc, he comes to the realization that my God has always been with me. That in the lowest times when I needed him, in my days of distress, he was there. And now when life is all good, I've cast them aside. I'm not there. This is not to be. He was there in my day of distress. I need to be with him now and worship him. And so he brings his family to Bethel to fulfill his vow. As a side note, I wonder if our attitudes for worship would change if only instead of seeing worship as an obligation and going through the motions that perhaps we take two or three minutes before we start worshiping, whether personally or corporately, to remind ourselves personally or as a family why we worship, why we are gathered there. Why are you worshiping God? Why are you watching this video now? Why are you gathering with your family to worship this weekend? It's important to understand the why so that we will place worship in the place of importance it needs to have. Realizing that the why is true, look at the action of Jacob's family, verse 4. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. The family of Jacob gave up all of their foreign gods and the earrings which were probably the things that they took from Shechem. And Jacob buried them under a terebinth tree which is an oak tree by the city of Shechem, as if to signify the putting away from the old and starting with the new life. Because if you want to start a new life, you leave the old behind. You can never expect to start anew if you can't get rid of the old. And this is a, a lesson for many Christians struggling to live the new way of Christ-like living. The problem is they can't get rid of the old ways. The problem in discipleship of why many still can't move on to the next step in their spiritual growth or maturity is because they can't get rid of their old habits, their old ways, their old thinkings. And yet, as hard as it is, it's something we must do. Look what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. you got to get rid of the old to make room for the new. That's what Jacob did with his family. And so they started their journey to Bethel from Shechem. Look at verse 5. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember what was Jacob's concern when his sons Simeon and Levi killed the men of the city, and the rest of the sons plundered the city of Shechem? He was worried that the rest of the Canaanite people would hear of it and perhaps want to kill him and his family in revenge. But God intervened, and instead of attacking Jacob, they were scared of Jacob on account 
of the terror of God. God put into their hearts a fear of Jacob and his family. And Jacob was able to travel freely and safely to Bethel without being pursued or being harmed. My friends, when we seek to worship God, when we seek to do what's right, when we obey what He has commanded, we really don't have to worry about anything else because the Sovereign Lord works in the hearts of people in ways we do not even know. That's part of God's protective care. Just do what God has asked you to do. Leave the rest to Him. Look at verses 6 to 7. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. When Jacob arrived at Bethel, he did in fact fulfill his vow and built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, meaning God of the house of God. It was an acknowledgement of Yahweh as the one true God. It was to acknowledge that during the, the lowest point of his life, the living God appeared to him to assure him that he would always be with him. Jacob's returning to Bethel is a reminder not to God of how faithful he is, but it was a reminder to Jacob himself, a story he could tell his family, that I stepped foot back into the very place where I thought I would never come back to. And so when God brought Jacob back to Bethel, it was to remind Jacob that he was a very different Jacob, or should be a very different Jacob. A Jacob who now acknowledges the one true God, Yahweh. The Jacob who would acknowledge that Yahweh was his personal God. He was not simply the God of his grandfather, Abraham, or that of his father Isaac, but his own personal God, the one he placed full trust in. The Jacob that left Bethel isn't the same Jacob that arrived because he came to the realization that the living true God, Yahweh, was the only one who had always been with him, that had never left him. This God would be his God forever. Look at verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. It seems very odd for the author to put in this detail about the death of Rebekah's nurse, Deborah. Seemingly out of the blue, her name appears and she dies. But when you look at the arc of Jacob's life, you realize it's appropriate. Deborah may have been sent by Rebekah to help Jacob during his escape. Or perhaps Rebekah asked Deborah to journey with Jacob a bit as he left Hebron, but could not journey with him fully before he reached Bethel. Or perhaps, more likely after Rebekah's death, Deborah joined Jacob's family. Whatever the case, perhaps Deborah reminded Jacob of his beloved mother. She was important enough to warrant a mention when she died. She was buried by Jacob also under a terebinth or an oak tree in Bethel. And he called the place Alun Bakuth, meaning tree of weeping. He was sincerely sad at the passing of Deborah. Perhaps it was Jacob's last connection to his beloved mother, and he was grieved of heart. He was never able to see his mother before she passed because he was in Padam Aram. It seemed like the imagery of bearing something under an oak tree meant putting away of old things to start anew. And if so, Deborah's death marked in Jacob's life the end of all the people who helped him in his journey but were in some way inadequate to really help him because they could not always constantly be in his life. He would come to recognize and realize that there was only one constant in his life, only one person that stayed with him, 
throughout its entire life, and that was God. Rebecca died before they could meet again. Deborah died and was laid to rest. Laban, who was supposed to take care of Jacob, but couldn't be trusted, so he was out. His cousins were jealous of him. Isaac couldn't help. He was old of age, and his brother wanted to kill him. So there really wasn't anyone who was able to be a constant companion to journey with Jacob. The only person who had been faithfully taking care of Jacob and providing constant companionship was the Almighty Lord God. And that is what is being commemorated and remembered here at Bethel, which is what Jacob says himself in verses 3 and verse 7. Life has come full circle for Jacob, and he returned to Bethel. But what is most important is that he learns that in God's companionship versus man's friendship, God's presence is the only constant in our life. And that's arc lesson number one. Arc lesson number one. In God's companionship versus man's friendship, God's presence is the only constant in our life. I hope you and I take this lesson to heart. God has, I'm sure, brought many people into your life that have played a great influential role in your life. But if you list them down and list, perhaps, the number of years they've helped you, everyone has a finality in the number of years they can be with you. Perhaps some of them have already passed away. There is no one person in your life that is with you from birth to death. There is only but God. And if that's the case, then why is it that we do not more closely develop our relationship with God? Why do we not more yearn our fellowship time with God? Why do we not seek to know Him more? I remember many years ago when I began my seminary studies at Dallas Seminary. I, like any student uh, going back to university and graduate studies, asked around, who are the best professors to take? Some of the fellow students told me, you better take Dr. Dwight Pentecost. He's in his mid-80s. He's about to die. You need to take his class before he dies. That's what they were saying. And of course, Dr. Pentecost was the professor of my father, 40 years older than me. And so you can imagine uh, this man in his 80s still teaching. And so many people, a lot of the incoming students, sat under Dr. Pentecost because he was such a renowned theologian, especially in the area of eschatology. And so we took his classes thinking that he may not teach next semester because this would be his last semester. Surprisingly, he taught for 14 more years. I graduated, and he was still teaching. He passed away at the age of 99, teaching until the very end. The interesting thing is, after my graduate studies, I maintained a very close friendship with him. He served on my ordination committee. And every time I went back to Dallas, I would make sure to take him out for a meal, and we would talk. And I would ask him about life, and he would give wonderful, sagely advice. He really had a lifetime of experience from which one can learn from being born in 1915. Well, when he passed away at the age of 99, my heart was grieved. Here was a man who had greatly influenced my life, who spoke great wisdom into my life. And I grieved the fact that he was no longer in my faith spiritual journey. But then I am reminded that the God he loved and taught about was still around and is the same God that I love and I teach about. You know, it's interesting that in life, we are naturally drawn to men and women who influence our life. But the amount of effort we put into that relationship, even more we must put in our relationship with the Lord God, 
who will be the one constant throughout our life. I just want you to think about that. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. After Jacob had fulfilled his vow to God at Bethel, God appeared to Jacob for the fifth time in his life and reminded Jacob that his name is no longer Jacob, but Israel, which means God fights. If you remember, this new name was given when Jacob was wrestling God. And through this new name, God reminds this now crippled Jacob that God would be fighting on his behalf for the rest of his life so that he would not have to fight. And we see this play out very clearly as God, in a sense, fights on his behalf by putting fear into the heart of the Canaanite cities that they would not dare touch Jacob and his family. Look at verses 11 to 12. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants. After you, I give this land. In these verses, God identifies himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty, and reiterates the unconditional covenant he made with Jacob's grandfather Abraham, which was then passed to his father Isaac, and now is given and continues through Jacob. All the elements are there from the original Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12, which was ratified in Genesis chapter 15. The element of blessing is there. The element of the land promise to the nation of Israel is there. And the element of seed or descendants. In fact, in verse 11, there's something that builds upon this covenant, which is more specific, that was not mentioned before. That not only nations would come from him, specifically the nation of Israel, but also kings, which of course is prophesying the kings of Israel like David and Solomon and the then future Messiah King, Jesus Christ. But what is most important to note is that this completes the thematic circle or thematic arc of the birthright controversy and issue that had been playing out since the beginning of the Jacob narrative. This had been played out since he was born as he was grabbing the heel of his brother coming out of the womb. If you remember, Jacob tries to buy the rights of the firstborn and does so from his older brother Esau for a bowl of stew. And through deception gets the blessings of the firstborn from their father Isaac who couldn't see very well. And Jacob, with the help of Rebekah, secures all of these rights using human methods even gets the irrevocable words of Isaac's blessing through deception. If you remember, the birthright and the blessing of the firstborn from the father is so that the eldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance. So if there are only two children, the eldest gets two-thirds of the inheritance, while the younger would get one-third. Jacob tries to secure the two-thirds, but ends up with nothing, not even the one-third, as he was run out of his home. But here God is saying all of these games, all of the desires, the manipulation, all the things you want, it's so petty. I already showed you through your experience with Laban and his livestock in Padam Aram that I can bless you even more, even if you are not the firstborn. And so here in this reiteration of the great Abrahamic covenant, the many blessings of this covenant are given finally and officially to Jacob, not to Esau. And with God's seal upon it, it can never be taken away from Jacob. It required no manipulation on the part of Jacob. It required no human intervention. God himself establishes the covenant through his own volition through Jacob. Look at verses 13 to 15. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. 
To commemorate this giving of God's covenanted blessing and promise, Jacob sets up a pillar to mark this seminal event. Notice in the first arc of the story, Jacob sets up an altar to worship God because of what he did. Now, in the ending of this second arc, it is a memorial pillar that is set up to remember also what God did. They serve the same purpose, the altar and the pillar, to remember what God did. It's a good reminder for us that when we think about God, it's not always what we can get more from God or to ask things from God. When we think about God, we need to take time to also remember His grace, His mercy, His goodness, His love. Do you spend time remembering and memorializing the good that God has done in your life? And this continued fulfillment of this covenanted promise is soon evident. Let's take a look at verses 16 to 20. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. As they left Bethel and were on their way to Bethlehem, Ephrath being the ancient old name of Bethlehem, Rachel goes into labor, and it was an exceedingly difficult delivery. And sadly, she didn't live through the delivery, and as she gave birth to her second son, the twelfth son of Jacob, she cried out that his name would be Ben-Oni, meaning son of my sorrow. But Jacob instead called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of good fortune. Jacob sees the birth of his twelfth son as a good thing, even though his beloved wife Rachel dies and he buries her on the side of the road to Bethlehem. In this circle of Jacob's life, ending with the death of his beloved Rachel, Jacob is brought back to the original covenant God promised his forefathers. But now Jacob knows it to be true. He sees it continued to be fulfilled right before his very eyes with his growing family. This is the lesson the new Jacob learns as he has come full circle. I'm sure he's known of the promises of God to Abraham and to his father Isaac. And he tried to actually secure it through his own human methods and means. But he quickly realizes that he cannot trust others. The works of others, even of his own hands, to try to get what God is not yet ready to give is futile. We know from a study in his life that he learns that man's words can't be trusted. Look at Laban. All of the promises he makes to him, and then he ends up marrying both Leah and Rachel. And the fact that his wages were changed ten times, even with the promise of Isaac, with his irrevocable prayer of blessing of the firstborn, it wasn't effective. And Esau was able to run Jacob away from even collecting. Rachel wanted to give Jacob more sons, more sons at least than Leah could. But that was also in the hands of God. And when she did, and she gave Jacob a second son from her, her life was taken away. You see, I think Jacob could see very clearly as he ended this second arc in his life that in God's promise versus man's word, God's promise is always better and is always fulfilled. And that's arc lesson number two. In God's promise versus man's word, God's promise is better and always fulfilled. In God's promise versus man's word, God's promise is better and always fulfilled. You see, a king can give his kingdom to his son, but he cannot guarantee that the kingdom would be passed on. His son can lose that kingdom, both through external or internal forces. His son can run that kingdom to a ground if the factors are not 
right if the circumstances are difficult. But God promised that Jacob would be the father of many nations, of a great nation called Israel. And Israel exists today, even thousands of years later. Learn the lesson that Jacob learns about God's promise versus man's word. God's promises are always better. They are always fulfilled. So if that's the truth, should it not be that we cling on to the promises of God written in His Word? Instead of spending time listening more to the words of men and women who will most likely not be able to keep their promises, why don't we trust the Word of God more? The words that are always true, that will always come to fruition, that are always better for us and will always be fulfilled. You know, as I think about the words of men and women, I think the relationship between a husband and wife and the relationship between parents and children are one of the strongest and should be the most trusting of relationships. If you think about that trust and relationship, it should be that a husband should never lie to his wife and a wife should never lie to her husband. A parent should never lie to their children and a child should never lie to his parents. But look at your life. I look at my life. I have lied to my wife. I've lied to my children. Even in the most trusting of relationships, we lie to one another. I remember years ago when I caught my child first lying to me. I was incensed. I could not fathom the reality or the thought that my son would lie to me. But then I caught myself. I've lied to him as well. We ask for God's forgiveness, of course, when we do so. It should not be how Christians, much less parents and children and spouses, work with each other. But even the most trusted of relationships will break relationships in various aspects, will break that circle of trust in various ways. So learn the lesson, even in your most dependable, trustworthy relationships that you can think of. It is God's promises alone that are always fulfilled and never broken. Would you know His Word more? Would you strive to know His Word more? Because God's words never fail. Look at the first part of verses 21 to 22. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Near the watchtower of Eder, near Bethlehem, on the way to Hebron, something terrible happens. Reuben committed sin by sleeping with his father's concubine. In ancient times, this was a perverted way to challenge the authority of Jacob or authority of the patriarch and perhaps trying to stake his claim to be the leader of the clan. But it didn't work because Israel heard about it. But in this act of defiance and rebellion by Reuben, he would lose his birthright as the firstborn to take over the family. Simeon and Levi also lost their birthright to rule the family because of what they did at Shechem. And so it went to Judah, the fourthborn son. And that's where the line of the Messiah would come from. And that's where the kings of Israel, starting from David, would also come from. You know, I'm glad the Bible doesn't cover up the warts and the problems that are in all families. Because as spiritual as a family can be, there is no perfect family in this sinful world. We need to always seek for God's mercy and live by His grace. But the greater lesson is that man's plans never work. God's sovereign plan will always come to fruition regardless of man's tries and manipulation. Look with me at verses 22 to 26. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, 
Judah, Ishakar, and Zebulun. And the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpha, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. In naming of the twelve sons of Jacob, we really get a sense that God's blessing was upon Jacob. Apart from whatever he tried to do, this was all the work of God. Early in Jacob's story, he tried to use a lot of manipulation to get his way, but it resulted in him having to run away from home with nothing. But by learning to trust God, Jacob now had a very large family and lots of possessions, not because of anything he did, but because of everything that God did. And even though he was also on the receiving end of deceit and being taken advantage of by Laban, God's plan still came to pass. And the sons listed here would indicate that he would indeed become a great nation, which, again, I've mentioned exists even until today, thousands of years later, in the Jewish people. Look at verse 27. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirja Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Jacob finally came back to Hebron and settled in his father's land, claiming his inheritance. For sure, Jacob would have visited his father on various occasions after his reconciliation with Esau, but this was the time he finally moved back and settled down in the portion of Canaan that was their ancestral center. Note that the writer makes it a point in verse 27 to show that Jacob's settling in Hebron was like that of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. You see, in this third circle of Jacob's life, as he returns full circle back to his father's land in Hebron, you actually have an ark. You see a very different Jacob coming back than the one that left. Yes, physically, he left with nothing and came back with 12 sons, a very large household, and lots of possessions. And it wasn't because of his planning. It was because of God's blessing through his sovereign plan. More than what he brought back to Hebron, in this third lesson arc, you have the lesson of God's sovereignty versus man's plan. And the lesson is God's sovereignty always wins out. Arc lesson number three. In God's sovereign plan versus man's manipulated ways, God's plans always wins out. In God's sovereign plan versus man's manipulated ways, God's plan always wins out. This is the lesson Jacob learned when he returned to Hebron. This is the lesson you and I need to learn. Look at verses 28 to 29. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now with the story or narrative bringing Jacob back to the land and claiming the promised blessing... The chapter ends with the passing of Isaac to draw an end to the story. Jacob had come full circle with him now firmly established to be the one to carry God's covenanted promise when before there was uncertainty and, and struggle between the two brothers. And if you read on to chapter 36, you will see that Esau is also blessed by God as well. God had not abandoned Esau, him being a child of Isaac as well. But I love the last line of this chapter. Both sons bury their father. Both have come to a place where they have accepted God's sovereign plan over their own way. And they could now join hands and bury their father together. It would be to your benefit if you and I learned this important arc lesson. That God's sovereign ways will always win out. So there shouldn't be a battle between God's sovereign way and man's manipulation or man's manipulative ways. Stop playing the games. Stop trying to manipulate the circumstances or manipulate emotions. When we trust in God's sovereign plan and recognize that His ways are the best, it makes life a lot smoother, a lot less dysfunctional, a lot less messy 
and perhaps you will realize that you will be blessed in the process. Recently, this principle came to mind. My family was craving burgers from a fast food joint. I won't name the franchise, but they sent me out into the COVID environment world just to satisfy their burger craving. Anyway, I happily obliged because I also wanted burger from this place. And as I drove through the drive-thru, I ordered five burgers and some chicken nuggets. Well, the order taker said, would you be willing to wait seven minutes? And I was kind of in a rush and a bit annoyed that I had to wait seven minutes. But I said, sure. And so I paid and waited for my order. Well, the one who was handling the window, the window attendant, gave me the first of order and said, sir, would you just wait for the chicken nuggets? Well, I waited seven minutes, and it still not yet come, and I was getting bored and antsy and a bit frustrated that it was taking longer than they said it would. began to question why I should have ordered chicken nuggets for my kids, and I rarely to never do this because I always trust the, the person who puts the order together, the window attendant, but I counted the burgers. In my wait, in my boredom during my wait, I counted the burgers, and I realized that they'd only give me four burgers. Well, I asked the window attendant to come and to check to see if I received five burgers. I said, ma'am, I ordered five. You only gave me four. She didn't look happy, but at that time, her manager was there and kind of listened in to what was the conversation. And the manager said, sir, how many did you order? I said, five. I only got four. I'm waiting for my chicken nuggets. And then in a side conversation between the window attendant and the manager, next thing I know, the window attendant seemingly takes the fifth burger out from under the counter and gives it to me without a word of apology, not looking very pleased. And then a minute later, hands me my chicken nuggets. I thought to myself, this was odd, but yet without wanting to think ill, I drove away. I thought to myself, you know, I'd driven this far, to come to this fast food joint that was open during the lockdown. And I said to myself, you know, normally if I gotten the entire order, I would have driven off, not counting the burgers. Then I would be mad at myself, and then my wife would be mad at me because now there's only four burgers for five people. And so I'd probably have to either go back or just simply have to split a burger with someone because it would be my fault. Having to wait forced me to count the burgers to show that I was one off. And receiving all five burgers, perhaps that's exactly what the window attendant did not want to happen, to keep it for themselves. It showed me that God was sovereign, even over perhaps a planned manipulative deception to minus me one burger. Whatever the case, I know as simple as that sound, that's how God works. God works in mysterious ways. He allowed my chicken nugget not to be ready to wait that amount of time to cause me to count the burgers so that I could get the full completed order. You see, this principle is so applicable in our life. We don't have to get mad when God's plan and His timing is different from ours. Maybe it's for our good. And so it is, Jacob's life comes full circle with three deaths in this chapter. We have seen the three thematic arcs in Jacob's life that remind us that while he seemingly comes back to the start, it's a very different Jacob that we are looking at. And so as you and I live out this life, I hope that as we end this life, we will not have come full circle. We would have lived through an arc. We would not be the same person that we started this journey on. If in the struggle between God's companionship and man's friendship, that God's presence is the only one constant in our life, may it be that we seek Him. He will come and be with us closer than a brother. Isn't it to our benefit that we seek to know the one whose love we cannot outrun? And may it be that when we struggle with understanding God's promises versus man's words, and we are drawn to man's words, and yet we come to an understanding that God's promise is better and always fulfilled should it be that we seek God in His Word. We cling to His Word. We trust it. We study it. We allow His Word to soak in to our minds and we live it out because it is only His words 
that will be fulfilled. It may be that as we struggle in our own lives, coming to terms with God's sovereign plan versus man's manipulative ways, and when we understand that God's plans will always win out, that we trust God in all things, accepting things that even if we don't understand why it goes a certain way or the way we want it, that we don't use human manipulation to achieve it, we learn to trust in God's sovereign plan and in His sovereign timing. So as I think back about life, the so-called circle of life, if you allow me to change Elton John's lyrics to his song, Circle of Life, to add some biblical meaning to it, here's my attempt. In the circle of life, it's the friendship with God. It's the promise of God. It's the plan of God. Till we find our place on the path that God wants. In the circle, the circle of life. My friends, don't finish your life in a circle, learning nothing. If you end this life starting right where you began, that would certainly be a waste of your life. Remember, it's not about circles. It's about arcs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of your word, specifically in the life of Jacob. I personally have learned so much. I hope those who have listened to your word have learned as well. We struggle at times in our life between the call of the world and the call of God. We seek the friendship of the world and forget that it is your companionship that is the one constant, the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. Help us to cling to you. Help us to develop our friendship with you. We want to listen to man's words, but we forget that it is your promises and your word that never fail. Help us to seek it more. Father, in our own lives, we desire our own ways. We manipulate things to get our ways, or we trust others, and we are deceived by it. Help us to trust in your sovereign ways. Help us to cling on to your sovereign plan and timing. We may not understand it, but help us to know that it is for our best. And at the end of the day, what's our use of manipulation when your ways will always win out? Father, may it be that as we live this life and the ending point of our life does not end where we started, but at a place where we draw closer to you and we are more Christ-like. Until the day we see you, may the arc and the trajectory of our life be Christ-honoring and God-pleasing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.